Hello, I am Dr. David Kuntz, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you to tonight's educational activity entitled, A Primary Care Initiative to Improve Equitable Screening and Management Strategies in Non-Valvular Atrial Fibrillation. Today's educational program is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, and Pfizer Alliance. This CME activity is certified by CME Outfitters, a jointly accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. I want to encourage everyone to join us tonight on our live Twitter conversation at CME Outfitters. We will be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. Once again, I am David Kuntz. I'm co-chief academic officer and vice president for academic diversity at Hackensack Meridian Health. I'm professor of medicine and senior associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine in Nutley, New Jersey. I'm very pleased to be joined today by a superb panel who I'll ask to introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Cho. Hi, I'm David Cho. I'm an assistant clinical professor and co-director of the quality program in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at UCLA Health. I'm also the current chair of the healthcare innovation section for the American College of Cardiology. Thank you, David. Dr. Cao? Hi, I'm Jari Cole. I'm assistant scientist too at the Hyundai and Arthur Marcus Institute for Aging Research at Hebrew Senior Life. And I'm an attending cardiologist at Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, the largest safety in a hospital in New England, where 70% of our patients that we treat are on a are on Medicare and Medicaid. Thank you both. What a superb panel we have tonight. Let's uh, begin tonight's program by reviewing our learning objectives. After completing these activities, learners should be better able to, one, implement screening in primary care settings to identify patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation who might benefit from anticoagulant therapy. Two, integrate current practice guidelines into the care of patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And three, collaborate with team members and patients to optimize screening and management strategies for non-valvular atrial fibrillation. To set the stage for tonight's program, let's take a brief look at the prevalence and impact of AFib in the United States. As you can see from the slide, the epidemiology of atrial fibrillation shows a rising prevalence uh, in all groups, but especially in those um, over the age of 65. We'll also note that uh, 10, 11 to 14 percent of uh, patients are uh, undiagnosed with atrial fibrillation. The prevalence estimates in 2010 ranged from 2.7 million to 6.1 uh, million, and the prevalence is predicted to increase to 12.1 uh, 12 million by 2030. Of course, what we all worry about as clinicians is the risk of complications associated with atrial fibrillation, including cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke. And these are a significant risk within five years of diagnosis. In fact, mortality was the most frequent major outcome during the five, first five years after diagnosis. Among non-fatal cardiovascular events, heart failure was the most common. 
We want to have, uh, we want to discuss in tonight's program the significance of social determinants of health and how uh, different patient groups uh, may not all be uh, receiving the same optimal therapy. The determinants of racial inequities can be recognized across the atrial fibrillation care continuum. Uh, changes or differences in the prevalence of risk factors, uh, less awareness of atrial fibrillation and lower detection, uh, less uh, treatment for atrial fibrillation, and as we showed earlier, an increased likelihood of complications. Interesting, there is a well-appreciated atrial fibrillation paradox in uh, African-American patients. Despite increased pre predominance of traditional risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, black individuals have a lower prevalence of atrial fibrillation. We might, uh, when we get into our discussion, hear from our cardiologist about why this might be. Uh, however, this should not be meant to say that this is not a significant issue in the African-American population, but there is this unique paradox that's been recognized. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Cho about screening high-risk patients for nonvalvular atrial fibrillation in the primary care setting. We'll also discuss some of the current and emerging technologies and mobile apps uh, used for detecting atrial fibrillation. Uh, this discussion will address our first learning objective, implement screening in primary care settings to identify patients with nonvalvular atrial fibrillation who might benefit from anticoagulant, anticoagulant therapy. But first, let's uh, get our audience involved with a quick audience response question. And here's the question. Opportunistic screening or atrial fibrillation is recommended by which of the following guideline committees? Is it the European Society of Cardiology, the U.S. Preventative uh, Services Task Force, both, or uh, neither, or E? <laughs> You're not sure. Okay, well, the right answer is, uh, is A, the European Society of Cardiology. 13% of you got that right, so good for you. We'll learn more about uh, this in just a moment. Okay, Dr. Cho, let me turn it over to you. Thank you, Dr. Kuntz. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, so atrial fibrillation presents with a wide range of symptoms, from no symptoms or very subtle symptoms, such as generalized fatigue or mild shortness of breath. Severe symptoms can include rapid heart rate, chest pain, palpitations, and heart failure. Regardless of symptom burden, however, untreated atrial fibrillation can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. Currently, our best estimator for stroke risk related to AFib is the chad vask uh, score model. On the right, you can see the annual risk of ischemic stroke for an AFib patient without anticoagulation on an annualized basis. Current guidelines recommend that males with a score of two or greater should start anticoagulation in the absence of significant contraindications. And for women, a score of three or greater would warrant initiation of an anticoagulant. There is an ever-expanding number of ways that AFib can be detected in today's world. This slide demonstrates the whole gamut of options from the lowest tech, which is the typical and traditional physical examination through palpation and auscultation, uh, more traditional options such as Holter monitors, ECGs, implantable cardiac monitors, and the newer technology modalities including PPG sensors from a camera light 
wearables such as smartwatches or other devices, and point-of-care ECG devices that are sold directly to consumers. However, despite our increased capabilities to detect and diagnose atrial fibrillation, there is still uncertainty about whether we should be screening patients for atrial fibrillation. Guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology, or ESC, and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, or U.S. PSTF, are shown here. While the ESC recommends opportunistic screening for patients greater or equal to the age of 65 and systematic screening uh, to be considered for patients greater than or equal to 75 years of old, or those at high risk for stroke, such as those with valvular heart disease, uh, the United States Preventative Services Task Force actually states that the evidence to recommend universal screening or opportunistic screening for atrial fibrillation is insufficient at this time to make a formal recommendation. The ESC does provide certain situations where screening can be considered, such as those with implantable devices, such as pacemakers, uh, who have high atrial rate episodes, which can be a potential precursor to atrial fibrillation, or those with a history of cryptogenic stroke in whom ambulatory monitoring is inconclusive. But let's take a step back and actually talk about what is opportunistic screening as a definition. In short, it means you're screening a patient without symptoms at an opportune time, such as during a routine office visit or other healthcare encounter. Contrast this method with systemic screening to recommend that anyone meeting certain criteria are invited to be screened. There is a trade-off as well to increasing the sensitivity of AFib detection. AFib is currently defined as a standard 12-lead ECG diagnosis or a 30-second ambulatory Holter monitor episode. Yet we know that the duration of AFib episodes correlates strongly with the increased risk of stroke. Is a single 30-second episode of AFib detected on a seven-day Zeopatch monitor really the same risk as someone diagnosed 20 years ago through the traditional ECG? How much AFib is clinically meaningful? We don't quite yet know the answers to this question among many others, which is in line with what the U.S. Preventative Task Services has recommended at this time. This demonstrates a list of the current diagnostic tools available to consumers to purchase over-the-counter that can detect and diagnose AFib. These devices have been FDA cleared through software algorithms to detect AFib through abnormalities in heart rate variation, as well as single-lead ECG rhythm analysis. Some of these devices are quite expensive, and they all require a smartphone with some form of data plan or Wi-Fi. Disparities in access to these tools and population-level decisions on screening based on biased study populations have a very real risk of worsening health equity and making recommendations on limited data. There are a few large studies underway to study the impact of these modern tools in the care pathway of AFib. The Heartline study is studying whether patients greater than or equal to the 65 years old with an Apple Watch will have improved detection and outcomes for AFib in the real world. Northwestern is studying the impact of an intermittent anticoagulation strategy dependent upon the Apple Watch's ability to detect AFib burden in low AFib burden risk patients. However, uh, perhaps most appropriate to this webinar uh, is the National um, Health Services in England. They are running a large randomized trial called SAFER, which will screen more than 120,000 patients greater than or equal to 75 years old across over 300 practices in England and Australia. The results of this study will help guide the NHS's decision on whether or not to institute a national AFib screening program. Thank you, Dr. Cho. Uh, I wonder if I could ask you two questions that are in the chat. 
uh, since they're timely to your presentation. Uh, the first is uh, the, if you know if and when the, the Preventative Services Task Force will re-examine uh, their statement regarding uh, uh, wearable devices and with regard to screening for atrial fibrillation. So um, I believe that the most recent recommendation came out in 2020 of inconclusive. Um, I believe probably in the next couple of years we may have an updated recommendation. Uh, a lot of these preventative guidelines are made in conjunction and uh, with advisement from our professional societies, such as the ACC or American Heart Association, Heart Rhythm Society. Um, the guidelines that were most recently updated by these professional societies was last updated in 2019, and updates come out every few years. So we'll have to wait a little bit longer before we get a, a, an updated assessment on uh, the inconclusive um, and a little bit more data as well in the real world. Great. And another question asked of uh, the, the audience member asked if the wearables you described can measure blood pressure as well as uh, a heart rhythm, or are they focused just on, on rate and rhythm? So currently by FDA cleared um, and de novo pathways, so far it is only for the detection and diagnosis of AFib, either by the actual EKG that it's doing, that's a single lead, or through an abnormal heart rhythm, sort of their own proprietary algorithm. Um, there are some companies in Europe and um, Korea, actually, that are approved over there for the detection of blood pressure through wearable uh, PPG signals. But at this time, you know, it's the studies are still investigational, um, and any devices that are claiming otherwise should be taken with a grain of salt. Thank you, Dr. Cho. Next up is Dr. Derek Ko, who is going to talk about current guidelines for the equitable management of patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Uh, this, uh, this question will address our second learning objective, to implement current practice guidelines in the care of patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. But first, we have another audience response question, so please get ready to uh, respond to this question. Which of the following direct oral anticoagulants, or DOAC, DOACs, reduces the risk of major bleeding versus warfarin? A, apixaban, B, dibigatran, C, edoxaban, edoxaban, D, rivaroxaban, or E, you're not sure. And please select your answer now. Hey, great, great job, 55% of you. The correct answer is A, apixaban. Terrific. Dr. Koh, over to you. Thank you, and it's certainly a pleasure to be here and uh, talk about anticoagulation management in patients with atrial fibrillation. Um, as many of you know, anticoagulation is the cornerstone treatment in AFib. And that's because without anticoagulation, AFib increases the risk of ischemic stroke about by fivefold. And cardioembolic stroke from AFib is more fatal and causes greater disability compared to non-AFib stroke. It carries a 30-day mortality of 24%, and an additional 35% are rendered unable to live independently after AFib-related stroke. And we know that compared to placebo and from the data from the warfarin era, the anticoagulation reduces the risk of stroke by at least 64% compared to placebo. So how do you select patients for anticoagulation? 
Um, you've heard already about CHAS that score, and according to the American guidelines, um, we use for men two points or greater, and for women three points or greater to select patients who sh uh, for anticoagulation. The current guidelines, the most updated guidelines for American Heart Association in 2019, state that the DOACs are should be the first line therapy. Um, and we have four options in America. We have a Pixaban, a Dabigatrin, a Duxaban, and Rivaroxaban. Warfarin is no longer on the equal level with the DOACs, and it's now considered the second-line therapy. And finally, I want to emphasize that aspirin should never be used as an alternative for stroke prophylaxis in atrial fibrillation. I sometimes see how um, in among patients who are referred to me, they are on aspirin because, uh, you know, because of the concern for bleeding risk um, instead of on anticoagulation. But that is no longer recommended. The decision should be either anticoagulation or no aspirin, and that's because we now have definitive data from clinical trial that aspirin carries a bleeding risk that is similar to apixaban. So why are the DOACs now the first-line uh, therapy according to the guidelines? That's because as a group, they have superior efficacy in prevention of thromboembolic complications compared to warfarin. According to the meta-analysis that was published in 2014, um, as a group, the DOACs reduce the risk of thromboembolic complications compared to warfarin. And after about a decade of using these drugs, we are now confident that the DOACs are probably superior to warfarin in terms of prevention of ischemic events. Really, the benefit of using DOACs come from their safety, superior safety profile. All four DOACs reduce the risk of hemorrhagic stroke by 50%, the most uh, devastating complication of anticoagulation therapy. A Pixaban is the only DOAC that's been shown to reduce the risk, risk of major bleeding compared to warfarin, and that's by about 30%. And the Pixaban was also tested against aspirin, 81 to 325 milligrams, and that's been shown not to increase the risk of bleeding. But not all DOACs are the same. Rivaroxaban was shown to increase the risk of GI bleeding versus warfarin in the pivotal trial. Only a Pixaban, as I said before, reduces the risk of major bleeding versus warfarin. And currently, a Pixaban is the only FDA-approved DOAC uh, to be used in patients on dialysis. There is currently a substantial underutilization of oral anticoagulants in patients with atrial fibrillation. This is a study that we recently published using study cohorts of patients um, who are beneficiaries of Medicare Advantage plans. And so we looked at people with new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and investigated whether or not they were started on anticoagulation therapy within 12 months of the diagnosis. And in year 2020, that rate is about 33%. The relative of DOAS has improved that percentage by about 12 to 13% in a decade but still a substantial number of patients with AFib remain uh, un, uh, untreated with anticoagulation therapy. And it's been very well documented that there are substantial disparities 
in the way that we treat AFib patients with anticoagulation. Black and Hispanic individuals are less likely to receive an oral anticoagulant. And among those patients who do receive an oral anticoagulant, Black and Hispanic individuals are less likely to receive a DOAC. And the reality is that even though the DOACs are first-line therapy, for Medicare beneficiaries, they can incur substantial out-of-pocket costs. So a classic story that I, I see in my, that I observe in my clinic is that I have patients who have been doing pretty well on warfarin, and I want to switch them to DOAC just because of the safety profile of a PIXBAM, for example, but I can't because their out-of-pocket costs can be like $400 a month. And related to that is also, um, you know, sort of a disparity in access to specialty care. We have data now to, that shows that the likelihood of starting a patient on an anticoagulant increases with the physician's specialty. So electrophysiologists are most likely to start patients with AFib with guideline eligibility for OAC on anticoagulation. But there are only about like 2,200 of electrophysiologists in the United States. Um, so, um, you know, the access to EP doctors is limited. And then general cardiologists are more likely to start patients on anticoagulation compared to internists. If there's any hesitancy about starting a patient on an, inter, on an oral anticoagulant due to their bleeding risk, the patient should be referred to cardiologists as soon as possible. And in this era, in year 2023, we should not have any patients unprotected for this devastating complication, yet highly preventable complication from AFib. Thank you, Dr. Ko. I'd like to ask you a few questions that have come in during your presentation. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, no patient should be left unprotected today. And, and sadly, I do see a number of patients admitted to my hospital uh, with no atrial fibrillation on aspirin. And it's, um, uh, it, it's a frustrating situation. Uh, I'm sure all of us see, we hear that. Um, do you encourage patients who have been stable on warfarin for years uh, to switch to a DOAC? I have for multiple reasons because of the safety profile of the DOAC. You know, in the past, there was a hesitancy about switching these patients, in part because, you know, there's a question of, you know, the DOACs don't have a reversal agent, um, you know, the data about the rivaroxaban increasing GI bleeding risk. But at this point, after about, it's been about 12 years after we've, we've been using these drugs, and they're just, they really improve the quality of life for these patients. My patients don't have to take INR checks anymore. Um, you know, they don't have to worry about the, the interaction with other medications with warfarin. They don't have to worry about the food, the interaction between warfarin and multiple, you know, different types of food that they can eat and not eat. It, it, it just, I really think that it improves their, their quality of life at minimum. Great. And Dr. Cho, if there are some questions you'd like to uh, respond to, please, uh, please jump in. Uh, the next question has to do with uh, you mentioned never using aspirin for stroke, uh, stroke prophylaxis. What about the role for clopidogrel? No, um, I don't do that either because really the benefit, the hypothesized benefit of using antiplatelet as opposed to anticoagulation is because you think that the bleeding risk is less. But with aspirin, 
it's not. It's, it's, that was shown in Everoa's trial that was published with Aristotle, which was the trial that led to the approval of Apixaban. And um, I do not think the clopidogrel reduces bleeding risk compared to Apixaban, but I think it's inferior to Apixaban or another DOAC in terms of prevention of thromboembolic complications. And I keep saying Apixaban because as you saw in the figure that I presented, the vast majority of patients in the United States now with new AFib diagnosis, they're being started on Apixaban. Great. I think you just answered the question um, for the individual missed the aspirin comparison with regard to bleeding with other agents. Uh, Dr. Chell, I wonder if I could bring you back in. There are a couple of questions related, one question related to wearable devices and how they make the diagnosis of AFib. And I'll put this in quotes, specifically if, an AFib, if a patient comes in showing an ECG that shows AFib, are you rechecking that in the office? If so, and the patient is not an AFib, what would your next step be? Would you order a Holter monitor? Uh, is there any kind of either guideline or, or approach that you would take in that situation? Certainly. So this is a great question. Um, I think just before I answer that, just the current devices, they do have the ability to do a single lead EKG, kind of just like a single lead holter. And that software analysis, just like our traditional ECG softwares, can detect or have been shown with high accuracy to detect atrial fibrillation or normal rhythm. Now, there are some limitations. I believe that, you know, certain, um, there's an upper heart rate where above, I think, 150 or so, it will classify it as inconclusive. So typically the less rapid AFib um, will be diagnosed. Then there's these, in addition to just the Apple Watch, you know, Fitbit, Galaxy, as I showed in the document, there's all these other host of ones that can also detect AFib through heart rhythm. And the way that one works is that if, you know, as these monitors have the ability to detect heart rate, you know, throughout the day, if it starts noticing more irregularity, it notes that and then starts sampling more frequently. And then based on that proprietary algorithm, that has actually been what the Apple Heart study, the Fitbit study, that's what they were actually using to diagnose atrial fibrillation. Um, and then they will usually get a notification saying, hey, you might be in atrial fibrillation, you should see a physician. They then have the ability to do a single lead EKG to confirm that. And the Apple Watch just got FDA cleared to detect in the people who have known AFib how much a burden of AFib that one is happening. Um, something I just learned as well recently is that it doesn't quantify 0%. It'll just say 2% or less. So it could be 0% or it could be somewhere in between. I just That was something that was new to me. And then, you know, actual numbers given the more AFib you have. Anecdotally, if a patient comes in and the ECG says, you know, atrial fibrillation, I do go through the pictures, are they able to export a PDF for me in an office visit? And, you know, if I typically am ordering a, a confirmatory uh, Holter monitor of some form, but for the most part, if they've had a whole bunch of them and it looks like AFib in the ECG monitor and they have a high CHAD score, I actually feel comfortable starting them on an anticoagulation because, you know, the data is and the fidelity and accuracy of their ability to diagnose. Again, cardiology trained human people is actually quite accurate. So, um, but I, for the most part, I will sometimes want to get a monitor also to detect burden of atrial fibrillation um, a little bit more specifically. Great. I'm going to take a couple of more questions now, and then we'll do the third part of our program, and then we'll have time if there are other questions that come in. 
uh, uh, for our speakers. Um, there's a question about why the rate prevalence is rising, um, and I'm going to think that part of that is because the risk factors are increasing, the, the obesity epidemic, the rates of, of diabetes. Uh, we've already heard that uh, many underrepresented populations are um, perhaps have unrecognized or untreated AFib, but I wonder uh, either Dr. Cho or Dr. Koh, if there are other thoughts that you have about why the prevalence is increasing that we haven't already touched on. I think um, it's probably at least part due to aging, the aging population. Uh -huh. If you look at um, the studies from charge AF cohorts, so um, we have a lot of epidemiology we know about atrial fibrillation comes from population-based studies, such as streaming and heart study, where I did my training. Um, and if you look at charge AF cohort, and that study looked at um, combination of multiple cohorts, um, and looked at risk factors for AFib, the one of the most important risk factors for AFib is actually aging. And so, you know, I think in the reason that we will expect to find greater number of patients with AFib is because people are aging successfully. Um, they're living longer, and therefore they're going to accrue more comorbidities that are associated with AFib, not just with aging. And I think that's probably why that the prevalence is projected to rise to that at least like 12 million as, as that study that you um, cited. And the last, thank you, Dr. Ko. Last question is for you, Dr. Ko. These are two related questions related to DOACs. One has to do with uh, whether you use DOACs in patients with a history of gastric bypass surgery. And let me ask the second one because it relates to uh, the requirement for taking food and weighing, say, river roxaban versus apixaban. The very good question about gastric bypass surgery. And I had a couple of patients and by the way, it's really helpful if your practice, if your hospital has a dedicated anticoagulation clinic, because typically the anticoagulation clinic has is staffed by um, pharmacists who are like really experts in the data in, in, in the anticoagulants. I've had a couple patients on bypass surgery, and I believe I was asked to switch them to warfarin, I think. And because of the concern for absorption, you know, warfarin, we can monitor them, we can take their blood, and we can monitor INR. With the DOAX, we can't, at least not routinely. So I think for a couple of patients, um, I've had them on warfarin instead, where I can monitor their INR uh, level. And where the absorption of the DOAX, I don't, you know, with gastric bypass, I'm just not sure. And I have no way of monitoring that the blood level of the drug. Um, thank you both. I'm going to uh, get started on the third learning objective. And again, we should have a few minutes at the end uh, for any unanswered questions or for some dialogue. Uh, this section of the uh, uh, program, this learning objective, is to collaborate uh, with team members and patients to optimize screening and management strategies uh, for nonvalvular atrial fibrillation. Um, and so this is our final audience response question. Uh, Patient-focused interviewing and care is an example of which of the following? A cultural humility, health equity, implicit bias, social determinants of health, or you're not sure.
Hey, everybody. Thank you, as always, for answering uh, this question. Uh, the answer is actually A, cultural humility. Uh, cultural humility is really defined as uh, both self-reflection uh, from the provider and then really having that open-ended, uh, if you will, non-paternalistic, collaborative relationship with patients, um, which is kind of part of the definition of patient-focused interviewing um, and uh, really has been shown to better engage patients, uh, to be part of their care, to be more activated and uh, proactive in terms of positively addressing health outcomes. So uh, we wanted to start this section with, with a, a definition, but we'll touch on the others as we continue through uh, this section of the, of the webinar. Um, so I, I think we all appreciate, and we saw a slide earlier, that the optimal care of a patient with uh, atrial fibrillation is, is truly a team approach, like most, most conditions that we treat. The patient is in the center, the idea again of that, um, <clears throat> really a focus on the patient. And ideally they're gonna have their primary care provider, their cardiologist, perhaps their electrophysiologist. And as Dr. Coe mentioned, uh, perhaps if there's a anticoagulation clinic, there may be a nurse specialist who's helping them with, with management. And then beyond that are another group of, of healthcare professionals um, they might have comorbid conditions such as sleep apnea, diabetes, uh, where those in, those specialists who work in those areas are part of the broader care team. They may need, they may have other CV risk factors. So having an exercise physiologist, a psychologist, if there are issues such as depression that are limiting or interfering with their um, interest in exercising, taking medications, following up, and of course a pharmacist. So really important to think about this broader interprofessional model to provide optimal care. So SDOH or social determinants of health uh, is, is an increasingly recognized important um, issue for us to think about as clinicians. Uh, I think I certainly trained in an era where uh, the focus was on pharmacotherapy devices and we've heard terrific uh, discussion tonight of devices to help identify uh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, but we've also heard that patients, uh, underrepresented patients, um, uh, have a greater burden of complications associated with atrial fibrillation. So uh, important for us when we're interacting with patients, when we see them in our hospitals, our health systems, to think about this broader context of social determinants. Uh, are, are there issues with their engagement with specialists, with clinicians? Um, it, are there financial resources, something we've already touched on? Uh, do they have access to those uh, appropriate specialists? Uh, do they have easy access for follow-up care? Um, are we thinking about health literacy? Um, all of us on this call likely uh, deal with very literate colleagues and family members, and we need to remember that the average reading level in this country is probably at the fifth to sixth grade level, so uh, certainly no higher than the eighth or ninth grade. So is the information that we're make, making available uh, really um, appreciated by that large percentage of people 
who are low health literacy patients? And then what is that patient's social network? Are they hearing messages from friends or family members that is discouraging them from uh, accessing care, continuous care? Are we making that effort to create those relationships uh, with patients that will connect them with, uh, with, uh, with caregivers? This can be very scary uh, for patients to be told or recommended to see a cardiologist, to see an electrophysiologist, to go for testing in a laboratory. Just the nature of that language to many patients is, is very scary, even terrifying. So how do we approach patients uh, about social determinants of health? And, and it's having that uh, very patient-centered discussion with them. It's, it's almost rather than the frustrated physician with arms crossed, it's palms up and arms open. Sample questions. What challenges do you have getting appointments? Do you have access to a pharmacy? Uh, do you have access to care in your preferred language, etc.? You see all of those questions here. And, and by moving a little bit away sometimes from our traditional focus on the nuts and bolts of the prescription and other things and, and showing the patient that we acknowledge that there may be barriers, I think can go a long way and can help with problem solving uh, that you or members of your office and the patient can address together. Uh, this is a, a, a busy slide, but it also reminds us of the importance of health equity. That is providing the right care to the right patient. Uh, not every patient needs the same type of support. Uh, there are going to be patients such as the low health literacy patient for whom, uh, if you identify that, you're going to, with their permission, perhaps call a family member to ensure uh, that the information that was discussed in that visit is conveyed or you're going to use the teach-back method. Now, perhaps something we should be using with all patients, but especially for that patient who needs that to ensure that they understand recommendations. Uh, so uh, this just reminds us of a lot of inputs to address health literacy, uh, leadership of your organization or your practice, spending time every month uh, talking about what you as a practice uh, can do as a member of a department can do to address literacy, uh, intersocietal collaboration, working with um, patient groups, uh, support groups to help address uh, um, health equity, uh, finding other resources such as grants, etc. So a lot of things that perhaps we need to think a little bit out of the box to address uh, health equity. And then, you know, a very important issue, I think, in the last uh, several years, something that has really come to fore, I'm going to say, uh, around COVID and the recognition that uh, in many pivotal trials in many disease states, we don't have equal representation uh, of patients to know whether they would benefit from specific treatments. Well, this is um, certainly the case in uh, AFib studies, and, and this is a uh, a slide going from the late 2000s until current day, looking at a number of uh, AFib studies. These are the acronyms of, of many different studies. And showing overwhelmingly the participation of, of white, and white patients compared to racial and ethnic underrepresented groups. And, and so um, not all of us in this call are involved in research, but hopefully we can all be advocates. We also need to 
appreciate when we read studies and make decisions about uh, treatments, um, were the patients that are in front of me that I'm treating studied in that particular clinical trial? And so I think we can, um, if you will, keep the pressure on to ensure that whoever's funding the study uh, ensures that it is as equitable in terms of uh, ensuring that all patient groups are, um, are participating. A really important role that we can play uh, to address this inequity. And then just a, a definition of implicit bias. This is something that um, we all have. It's an automated response. It conserves brain energy, and in many instances, we're right. So um, that when I speak on this topic to our trainees, I tell them that uh, we're all biased, and we need to get over that. Um, it's an automated reaction, um, but they can negatively impact our understanding, actions, uh, and decision-making, and it's sometimes difficult to potentially acknowledge that. There have been famous studies about um, pain management in emergency departments and how members of underrepresented groups receive less uh, pain management. Uh, there have been uh, studies looking at attitudes and scenarios where individuals who score highly on a test such as the implicit association test, uh, that that can actually be determined, be picked up by patients. And they can, um, they, they literally feel that those clinicians spend less time with them, the veracity of their recommendations are not as strong, the level of connectivity is not as great. So, um, I will just tell you, in the education world today, we're teaching about uh, the potential impact of bias. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what to do about it, admittedly, uh, but it is part of, a, I think, a growing conversation when we look at unequal health outcomes to consider the role of implicit bias. So when we kind of think about uh, the discussion tonight and uh, what we can do as clinicians, how we can move forward, it's important to think about SMART goals. SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So examples, using the CHADS VAST score and other evidence-based tools to identify non-valvular AFib appropriate patients. To assess digital tools that Dr. Cho talked about, uh, as well as others he may not have had a chance to mention, that may facilitate screening and monitoring of patients at risk for atrial fibrillation to implement current evidence-based management strategies for anticoagulation in AFib, to engage in shared decision-making with patients uh, while considering the impact of social determinants of health, and to be willing to shine that mirror on ourselves and reflect on our own practice and the possibility of implicit bias and provide equitable care to all patients regardless of race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. So we're going to move now into some additional questions and answers. I'm going to take a look at uh, some of the questions that were um, added, and uh, there are a lot, which is terrific. So I'm going to open this to, to Dr. Cho and Dr. Ko. And uh, so let me start with the, the first one on my screen is a PCP. I'm not sure when to refer to a specialist. Can, can we, as PCPs, start DOACs without sending 
the patient to a specialist, presumably a cardiologist. Definitely, yes. <laughs> and that will and that will minimize the gap. Um, the time that someone is from the time that someone is diagnosed with AFib and the time that the patient is doing anticoagulation. The reason I think it's worthwhile to send all patients, refer all patients to AFib uh, to cardiology at least once is not so much because of anticoagulation management. I think I certainly think that that can be managed by primary care doctors. It's because of how to treat that AFib for the rhythm control. Um, because, you know, earlier that you treat the AFib for rhythm control, for example, with catheter ablation, much more likely that that patient will stay in sinus rhythm. And what you don't want is that there's a delay, you know, someone has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation or essentially AFib occurring um, intermittently. You know, that patient doesn't get to see a cardiologist for a year or longer, and then that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation turns into persistent AFib, at which point that it becomes a, the success of catheter ablation, for example, um, is, is much more reduced. Thank you. Dr. Cho, a question for you. It has to do with how does a smart stethoscope work? And a related question, do wearable watches continuously look for arrhythmias or only when the user activates that function? Oh, sure. For the first part of that question, the smart stethoscope, um, that's the, the one I think you're referring to as the eco device. Uh, that doesn't detect it based on heart rhythm alone. There's a specific device where they have a single lead EKG. It's basically like a, it looks like a stick and creates a single lead EKG while you're listening. And then from that single lead EKG can determine whether or not you're in AFib. So it's a tool that's useful for potential screening, um, for primary care physicians. It's kind of like the advanced stethoscope that has a single lead EKG capability, um, for, I guess, the opportunistic screening. But again, that evidence is sort of inconclusive based on USPTF, um, at this time. For the um, question about the wearable watches and the ability to detect AFib, that is a function usually you need to set up uh, through the app itself, whether it's the Fitbit app or the Apple Health app or whatever device you're using. Um, and the way that it looks for it is it's not continuously. It's basically triggered if when it's periodically checking your heart rate throughout the day, if it's noting more irregularity in that, then it starts sampling more frequently and then you will enter the algorithm. It's been trained to potentially under-detect AFib because it, we, it didn't necessarily want to create a tool that was overly sensitive uh, and having people be notified for potential short durations of AFib in an attempt to try to make it less sensitive and perhaps a little bit more clinically relevant. Thank you. There are a couple of questions related to uh, representation of racial and ethnic groups in AFib trials. The first is, you know, why is this happening? And I, I would um, volunteer that it's uh, similar to underrepresentation in lots of clinical trials. There is a historic uh, distrust issue of underrepresented patients and research, and this is a bigger topic for another evening. Uh, there, um, there are barriers in terms of perhaps getting to the research center the investigators or, or others, part of the research may not will look like the subjects and there may be a lack of confidence. There is a, a question for our two panelists. If either of you know if there are 
AFib anticoagulation trials that are enrolling that um, the, the audience could recommend to potential patients. And I know that there are lots of trials, but do any trials come to mind um, that are big trials still enrolling that we could make the audience aware of? Yeah, so um, so I just want to go back to the question of a, about underrepresentation of um, racial and ethnic minority patients in the cardiovascular trials, really. And I think there are a couple issues. Number one, you know, for these trials that uh, are trying to test a new drug, right, that with the hope of getting FDA approved, really the focus is making sure that we, they, they enroll enough patients. And it's been just really hard to enroll patients in America. A lot of patient enrollments comes outside of the United States, particularly in Europe. So you can imagine if when in that situation, it's, it's going to be really hard to have diverse representation in this trial. And secondly, you know, I try to do enroll patients for clinical trial at Boston Medical Center, which I've mentioned before is, the, is a very large Sydney hospital. I think the challenge is that with a lot of safety hospitals, there's a lack of infrastructure to enroll patients efficiently into clinical trials. Um, not all trials come with like startup package for investigators to efficiently run this or to hire an RA, for example. Hospitals that are able to enroll a lot of patients already have established infrastructure and those hospitals, uh, those hospitals, um, uh, you know, are not safe in the hospitals. In terms of current trials that are for anticoagulation, yes, actually, um, factor 11A trials are phase three trials for factor 11A inhibitors are, I believe, have literally just started. Um, so just briefly, I'm not involved with the trials at all, um, but, uh, you know, I've been following the science. The, as you can tell, as you could tell from our, from the data that I showed you, that despite the availability of these DOAs, which are considered safer alternative warfarin, there's substantial underutilization of anticoagulation. So the idea is, is that with the factor 11A inhibitors, which haven't shown to reduce risk of bleeding compared to DOA, particularly apixaban and rivaroxaban, um, they, we will be able to anticoagulate more of these patients, especially high risk of the patients, patients who are at high risk of bleeding. So the three factor 11A trials will probably go into phase, phase three trials, and I believe one of them already started. It was all over the media. Esindexian um, is one of them. Um, it's conducted by Bayer. So, you know, if you just go to clinicaltrial.gov or go to, like, just, type in SMVXN and Bayer or Factor 11 and Bayer, it'll be all over the media, and I think there is a way to enroll these patients. I think the value of enrolling those patients, in my personal opinion, is really if you have a patient who's not on any anticoagulation therapy for some reason, because someone thought that the patient can't be an anticoagulant, I think there may be value to enrolling those patients. But if a patient is doing already well on a Pixivan, then, then the equipoise is, you know, there's an issue with equipoise. Great, thank you. I think I'm going to get the hook in about a minute, so I'm going to ask some real quick questions and ask you guys to give us some quick answers. Doctor Cho, do you know if the Apple, if there are any enrolling Apple Watch trials? Um, in terms of clinical, I'm sure there are like small studies that investors, investigators are doing at their 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 sites. 
Um, the biggest one is the one that I mentioned, the one that's uh, going live, I think, at Northwestern and in association or partnership with John Hopkins, which I think they're going to enroll five or 6,000 patients who have low AFib burden to determine whether a sort of smart device guided anticoagulation strategy may be potentially a new paradigm of care down the line. Meaning, let's say I have AFib once every couple of months and it lasts for a couple of hours. I get notified. I start on an anticoagulation for a predetermined amount of time and then I stop. Um, will that be any different than the current standard of care in terms of outcomes? Uh, that that's going to take like five to seven, probably more like seven years before we get any results from. But um, I'm, I'm not sure how to enroll patients into that trial currently, but I do know that um, they will start enrolling soon. So I don't know if we have any Midwesterners or um, Mid-Atlantic providers on this call. Thank you. Dr. Cho, briefly, can you discuss the, maybe you mentioned this earlier, the future of reversal agents for DOAC? How close are we to have something that's practical? Well, I mean, some of the DOACs do have reversal agents. And Dr. Cho, I know that you know, you're probably aware of this as well in terms of the reversal agents. I believe Apixavan does have a reversal agent as well, right? Oh, yeah. They've been approved for a while. So for Dabigatron, yeah. it's called Idarosuzumab. For yeah. For factor 11 inhibitors, it's indefinite alpha. And, yeah, they're they're just really expensive. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the current guidelines recommend that not every hospital has it. They are used in certain situations in certain hospitals. Let's put it that way. For severe bleeding. Uh, Dr. Ko, there's a question about can a patient receive a DOAC who, is on a, who has an indwelling Foley catheter? Yep. As long as the creatinine is fine, that's, you know, it's important to know that, and you can quickly look this up on uh, up to date if you have any questions. Both Rivarosman and Pixam come with uh, about directions about uh, reducing your dose, when to reduce your dose. That's the most important thing. Rivaroxaban typically is 20 milligrams a day. It's something you reduce at 15. Then uh, with Apixaban is, um, you reduce at 2.5 to BID. And the indication for uh, dose reduction is clearly you know, it's any website or really up-to-date will have that. It's important to just follow the direction. There's a, a question about the challenge of shared decision-making when patients aren't interested. Uh, I would say it's you just have to try to stick with it. And at one of the visits, if you have that um, open, interested approach, hopefully patients will come around. But I will be the first to admit that it can feel frustrating and Many times patients are, are in that more paternal mode where they just want you as the provider to tell them what to do. Um, but I think we have to try to keep pushing back in a – kind of find the right place to probe and, and get that patient engaged. Uh, I think the data is pretty clear that if we can get that patient engaged and activated, uh, they will do a lot better uh, long term. With regard to asking about social determinants or using a questionnaire, I think they're, you know, depending on the setting, both could be done. Um, I don't think you want to pick and choose. So the advantage of a questionnaire is you kind of get a baseline uh, for all of your patients. But I think it really does benefit from a face-to-face, eye-level discussion with patients, making sure they understand how important you um, you know these issues are to their health. And I think that's a very powerful conversation that you can have with patients in my in my experience. Uh, I'm done. I think I probably need to move on. We didn't get all the questions answered, so I apologize for that. We did the best we could.
uh, to receive CME or CE credit for this activity. Uh, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online, and there is a request credit tab to complete the process and print your certificate. We also want to um, encourage you to visit the cardiology hub at cmeoutfitters.com for uh, more free resources and education for healthcare professionals and patients. On behalf of Dr. Cho and Dr. Ko and the team at CME Outfitters, thank you for joining us tonight for this uh, discussion. Uh, have a great evening.